Mark, this week in a <laughs> Mark, this week we start the first in our two-part series where we interview Steve Doty. The one and only. Yes, the founder and director of Direct Connect Humanitarian Aid. And in this episode, uh, we talk to Steve about Direct Connect Humanitarian Aid because not only do we believe in what Direct Connect is doing, uh, and we want to shed light on that so that if others uh, want to learn about it and see how they can participate they can know how it's an engaging fascinating story but also we believe that this is good for interman radio audience because steve is the embodiment of what interman radio is all about he really is we don't have a mascot but if we did steve would it would be, be it. steve yes yeah. <clears throat> steve is is exactly what we're trying to do with interman radio steve is an everyday guy but he's a hero to so many mm-hmm. uh, both uh, both foreign and domestic you know, Steve is he's really a common guy, but he's done some spectacularly uncommon things. And his story serves us so well as an example of what to follow as Christians and as men. Yeah, so this week as you're listening to the audio, it is improving, or believe it or not. It, yes. Amen Radio, but you won't notice it this week. Uh, yeah, but you, won't, you can't tell. No, uh, due to uh, some constraints and... and frankly learning curve on how to record a phone interview with three different phones and blah blah blah, 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 blah any blah, other blah, excuse blah. we can make for that so thank you for hanging in there enjoy the interview Welcome to Interman Radio, where we accomplish more than we thought we could through Christ's power working in us, regardless of what your pastor said last week. So let's drop the excuses, pick up our Bibles, and prepare to win. We're excited to have a special guest this week on Interman Radio, Steve Doty, the founder and president of Direct Connect Humanitarian Aid. Direct Connect is active in over eight countries, helping people in some of the most difficult countries to access, even communist countries, uh, Vietnam, Belarus, Myanmar, Philippines, uh, Kosovo, giving support to people in these countries who have a heart to help their fellow citizens. So with no further ado, hello, Steve. Hello, Jason. Hello. <laughs> and Mark, Mark's here, too. Steve, it's great to have you. Yeah, yeah it's hey, great Mark. to have you tonight on uh, on Interman Radio. Thanks for taking the time to be with us and uh, spotlight what Direct Connect Humanitarian Aid is doing at home and abroad. Well, yeah. good to be with you guys. Steve, we're looking at a, a website. I'm looking at directconnectaid.org, and I'm looking at projects here from around the world. I see here there's wheelchairs in Kosovo. I see uh, medical exams in Vietnam. Uh, I'm looking at uh, Dr. Yuri Rogoff uh, visiting, I think, probably the United States, looks like. Um, Southeast Asia, Children's Center getting a boost. We're looking at clothing for orphans. Um, tell us what, what you're up to with Direct Connect Humanitarian Aid and, and what the latest and greatest is at this point. Okay, uh, Direct Connect um, Humanitarian Aid started in 1998, and it, it started out primarily uh, to help, as, a, as the Bible says, orphans and widows. They are the most vulnerable uh, uh, segments of the populations anywhere, is uh, the orphan and the widow. It started with that first in Belarus, but... One thing about this organization we found very quickly as we began helping orphans and widows, we saw there were other people, the elderly, uh, the disabled, uh, people lacking um, basic uh, things such as food or clothing or, even, or medical care. So 
we found ourselves just continuing to respond to whatever people told us they needed. Um, and so we became, uh, I guess, very diversified in the kind of things that we would do. And then it led to other countries because other countries, we met people that said they needed help. And what we find, because this is a human thing, uh, that people's uh, needs uh, are pretty much the same all over the world. Uh, mm -hmm. Things that they lack, things that, uh, you know, are vital, clean water, you mm -hmm. know, uh, so we deal with some of the things that affect the people directly. We also deal with, it morphed into some of the social ills. We find ourselves working with people struggling with drugs and alcohol. So we have some, some of our uh, support goes to some of the programs being offered in different countries. And then it what led into human trafficking. Hmm. So we've been helping people. Uh, these are people already working these programs. What DCHA does, we don't necessarily go in and take over, but we help the helpers help the helpless. We They, they got good people in these places that uh, are doing, you know, the best they can and doing doing a good job. They just generally lack resources. So we try to connect with them, hence the name Direct Connect, to help mm -hmm. them do what they do. So... We're finding ourselves being spread more and more uh, to different places. Many times the needs are the same, but uh, we, we try to help people wherever they say they need the help. We don't tell them what they need. They tell us, and then we do what we can to find the resources uh, to help them accomplish uh, the work they're doing. So let me see if I... If I'm getting this right, Direct Connect is not establishing, um, it's, it's not your goal to have franchise Direct Connects in all of the, in all of these countries, but rather to kind of pull those organizations that are already doing the humanitarian aid work, the, the, the local organizations together into a network where they have access to to either funds or materials that they can't get. Is that accurate? Yeah, sometimes we work on a personal level. In other words, we might work directly with uh, the director of an orphanage or okay. the director of a, you know, a hospital. Mm -hmm. Or we might actually work with a local NGO, another nonprofit. Uh, Spring of Revival is one of them in Belarus, and this lady is... Ah. Uh, working to help uh, fight, uh, well, through her efforts at orphanages, uh, collecting the older girls when they're being let out, rather than let them go to the street, and mm -hmm. now she's getting mm -hmm. some boys too, she brings them into a safe home and she mentors them, gets them a part-time job, gets them enrolled in school, and by doing this, this preventative measure to keep them from the street it prevents the predators from getting to these young people and whisking them off to moscow for these great jobs in modeling and acting right so, um, right so what she's doing is a great thing she's preventing uh these kids who are some of these have grown up in the orphanage they were left there as babies and they're being put out on the street at 16 17 years old and they have no real uh, skills, social 
skills are quite naive and they're very, very mm-hmm. vulnerable. Many of them don't even have a last name. Mm. Wow. Well, you can imagine how susceptible they would be. Yeah. Um, especially in a society, and many societies still have orphanages. America gave up on those, you know, basically uh, orphanages vanished in America after World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have an entirely different program to deal with social orphans, you know, kids that are either unwanted or the parents are dysfunctional or possibly even dead. Um, we have foster care and we have adoption, but we don't have orphanages. Uh, so Sure, but D- DCHA is not going to come in, say, to a, a Russian country and set up a new orphanage, you're going to use the infrastructure that already exists. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. I gotcha. We will help them do what they do. If they have basic needs, like let's say it's an orphanage that's very poor, and the children lack shoes uh, or, or clothing or, you know, yeah. uh, decent blankets on their bed, uh, underpants, uh, we find out that's what they need, and we make it happen. We... Uh, Generally, in that case, it would just be cash. You know, we would get the money, and we would have a contact that we had, we trusted to go out, buy all the supplies, and deliver uh-huh. them right, right to that orphanage. And, of course, we'd be there to see it. So that's uh, one of the things about DCHA. We know where the money's going. We know that they're doing uh, with the money what they expect. we expect them to do with it. Yeah. So that would be one way, is a direct direct help for the immediate need, you know, in that case, for an orphanage. So in doing so, it sounds like this is a much more efficient model in getting the help people need to them instead of building some large infrastructure and organization with different teams and groups and all this where you're telling people what to do and go here and go there. You're going to the people who are already doing it, asking them what they need, and you're connecting them directly to the resources to get to fill that need. So there's probably very little in the way of, uh, I would think, um, of uh, red tape and things like that, huh? Right. I think we've streamlined the process, and when we explain it to people who contribute to what we're doing, they, they like it because a lot of people have said to me, you know, they've given money to different organizations, but they never had any real assurance that their money actually went to the child that right. flies all right. over its face. Right. You know, that they saw on TV. Right. They they don't have any real way to know that, that that's where the money went. Where we make sure we personally deliver the goods, or if I send it in advance, it's because I'm coming there. And after I arrive in country, I expect to be taken to the site where the water well was supposed to be put in or where the improvements were supposed to be done at the orphanage or the supplies that were bought. I expect, and, I'm, and it's, I've never had a problem with it, the people we're dealing with are really good people. In fact, if you think about it, uh, people that are helping other people primarily from their heart because they don't get paid hardly nothing to do this. You're actually meeting the best people in the world um, because, again, they're doing what they're doing from the heart. I've been in places where the staff at, a, at an orphanage, uh, or actually it was a TB school, kids that had been exposed to tuberculosis, the mm-hmm. staff said they hadn't been paid in two months, but they wow. show up every day. Why? Because they love the kids, wow. period. Yes. And they weren't even getting, you know, no, they're paid from the government, but they went to work anyway. 
see, see on your website, I see uh, uh, wheelchairs for Kosovo. What, what's that all about? Well, actually, that was a joint effort. It took a couple years to make it happen, but it's still it's still uh, growing. Let me just give you a quick overview. We were in Kosovo at the request of an organization called Handicos, uh, which actually helps uh, paralyze people in Kosovo. And the director, uh, his name's Ephraim, uh, he's actually a, uh, in a wheelchair himself. He said they really needed help with... Uh, this problem with pressure sores, bed sores, and he wondered if I could bring somebody that could do some training on prevention and treatment of the pressure sore because it says killing these people. And it, it does here, too. Those things are serious uh, sores. Anyway, um, uh, I asked a couple nurses there in Montana and, uh, you know, about this, and is that a specialty or can most nurses do it? And they volunteered. That they said, we'll do it. They came over, they put on the training. We had about 50 people in attendance. They were nurses, they were caregivers, they were patients themselves, and wheelchairs attended the training. Anyway, during that time, one of the other people working at Handicost, who had a responsibility to uh, repair these this, all kinds of mismatched wheelchairs, American, European, they were donated, they were, some were old and falling apart, and his job was to try to keep these people mobile, and he was complaining and said he just wished that they had their own wheelchairs. They could make their mm. own. And I told him, I said, yeah, that'd probably be pretty good, you know. And, <laughs> right. and then it, it, it dawned on me that I knew a guy in uh, Bozeman, Montana, Wayne Hansen at Rock Wheels, who makes the best uh, wheelchairs for severely disabled children. You know, he makes it all kinds of good uh, quality chairs who he had asked me before mr hansen about the possibility of making chairs in a, in vietnam or somewhere uh he had tried and it didn't work real well and i so i asked him i, I told him about kosovo and he was very interested so the planning uh began and uh we raised the money the plan was to send a container of wheelchairs to kosovo which we accomplished last september mm-hmm. Uh, brought a team on site, uh, handicrafts, identified about 60 people needing the wheelchairs, and they were all fitted for their particular chair. Some that needed uh, very specialized ones, the children that needed those got them. Adults that just needed a decent chair, they got theirs. And then Mr. Hansen, because he's connected, he invited a man named... Um, uh, Ken Erickson from Istanbul, Turkey, who's been doing wheelchairs there for 30 years, and Mr. Gregor Horchak, who makes the best wheelchairs uh, in Europe, and he's out of Germany. They met us there. The Ministry of Health came down, the Ministry of Social uh, or Labor and Social Welfare, uh, the media. Uh, this is in Kosovo. In Kosovo? In, in Kosovo, in Pristina, in the capital city. At at Handicross. And so all these efforts are being moved forward about them actually being able to make uh, this type of chair that Mr. Hansen has designed through Rock Wheels out of Bozeman that can be done locally there. And, uh, and they intend to, uh, from Handicross, begin to distribute these chairs to help countries around them, such as Macedonia, Albania, wow, uh, 
yeah, even uh, even the Serbs, where they had this, you know, the Kosovo War was all about that. So Montenegro, all these different places. Um, so that was a quite a, a it's still ongoing. You know, we've we've accomplished that first phase, and now we're seeing how we can continue to expand the effort. And I will believe in uh, for Kosovo. I'll be there uh, March uh, 30th. And I will be meeting with uh, those same ministries. And uh, right now, Ephraim is trying to set it up with the U.S. ambassador as well so that he's involved. So it's a real joint effort with uh, the local, with the government, with uh, at least the, uh, I guess, uh, the, the uh, approval or the, you know, the uh, involvement of the U.S. Uh, in, uh, ambassador. Uh, at least to keep him apprised as to what's being done there with our NGO between Direct Connect and Rock Wheels out of Bozeman, Montana. Wow. Well, you have been busy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, Steve, I was talking not very long ago with uh, with our friend uh, Sue Nguyen, and you uh, shared with me a little bit of your, of your latest trip to Vietnam and uh, the trip that he and Jesse got to uh, meet up with you on, and he had a he had a tremendous time. Uh, that's your latest one. How long were you in Vietnam? Uh, we all departed on uh, December 27th, and we arrived late on December 28th. And um, there was some other people. A couple college students went with us. Uh, they were out of the Lima, Ohio area. Uh, they could only stay till the, the 6th of January, but myself uh, and uh, two others, Davy and Sue Wilson out of Lima, Ohio, uh, we left on Friday the 13th. They went home, and I went to Myanmar for another week. I was in Burma, and uh, Jesse and Sue stayed with Doc for another, I think, four or five days because he visited yeah. his grandma. So I was gone a total of a little over three weeks uh, to both those countries. And and you managed to get Sue Wilson on a plane. Is that is that correct? Yeah, Sue Wilson. She <laughs> sure did. I, I know she's really adverse to flying. So uh, Sue, good on you if you uh, if you manage to cross the pond. That's that's tremendous. What was the uh, what was the her second time with us? Yeah. Oh, is that right? What was what's the nature of the of the project in Vietnam for you? Well, what we do with Direct Connect, as we do in all our places, which I think is kind of a, you know, makes us different, you know, a little bit different than maybe some other NGOs. We go to the same places all the time, and we build the relationships, and generally we don't drop any unless for some reason they're just totally not working. Uh, it's not profitable for us, you know, or or for other reasons maybe. Uh, but we we will uh, maybe take on even more, which happened on this trip. But what we did, we went to Hanoi and we met with Dr. Fong, who was the director of the uh, uh, handicapped children's school. Now we've been doing this for 15 years in Vietnam. Yeah, that may be familiar to me. Yeah, we shipped uh, handicap equipment there because we brought her here yeah. to allow her to see a handicap school here. She saw a bunch of equipment. She needed some. They gave it to her. We shipped it to Hanoi. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, we visited with her. We went on down to uh, our 
our contact and way where we visit the Blind Association. It's a blind village. There's a bunch of blind people in that area, and they've kind of joined themselves together like an association. Their condition is really uh, difficult. They're poor because they're blind. They can't work. Um, and our help to them is more friendship. We take them a token by bringing them rice, noodles, uh, mosquito nets, and blankets. Uh, it's more of just a kindness that we show them because obviously we yeah. cannot heal their blindness. It's permanent uh, with the people. Um, so we make that regular stop, but you need to understand something. The people that get impacted by this sometime, and this is another thing about DCHA, sometimes people think if we're giving direct support here to this poor little orphan kid, that that's really, you know, our main mission. And, well, in a sense, it is. It's what we do. But never forget the impact it makes on the staff at that orphanage who cannot sure. provide that right. child. And sometimes we look and we see the staff crying while we're bringing shoes for the kids because they uh -huh. couldn't give the kids shoes. Right. Uh -huh. So the impact on them... And that's what we see when we're helping the blind people. There's a lot of local volunteers that go with us to help make the distribution of these packages to these poor people. And it really is an impact on them as well, and including with our own team members, because we take sometimes new people with us. And the two college girls, uh, I noticed when we were passing out the things, one of them was standing aside and she was crying hmm. because the people looked so pitiful. And it, so my point is, what I, I'm convicted of this, you know, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And why does the Lord say that? It's because when you help someone else, you're the first beneficiary of that. It, it upgrades you as a person. It changes your inward man. When you're helping some helpless person, when you've esteemed them better than yourself, you're the first person that is benefited. It impacts you, too. So we went from there. We went to a place, and you would, you've got to see this to believe it. It's on the YouTube. So if you just Google buried, buried, man buries 10,000 babies in Vietnam. This guy. I, I, don't know if I, want to, I don't know if I want to visit that on YouTube. Yeah. It's powerful because what it tells you, this poor man who took his wife to a clinic because she was pregnant and having some little problems with it, he noticed women coming in and pregnant and leaving without their baby. And so he wanted to know what was going on, and he found the doctor was putting the babies in the trash. And he asked oh. the doctor, can I have that? I want to give it a proper burial. And so the doctor did, and he did. And then he did it again. He did it again. Well, once we saw that on the YouTube, uh, this man has now buried 10,000 fetuses. And so we met and, with and, him. And these were, these were children that were delivered alive, or were they? No, were they, they were aborted. Were they aborted? And then, okay. Yeah. And then he felt he needed to do something more, so he started talking to the pregnant women, and he got them to agree to give him the children. So uh -huh. he has saved 160 wow. children. Wow. He's wow. got three different makeshift orphanages. He's still a poor <laughs> man. 
and yep. you've got Man. all these little kids running around. Man. And now I said, what did the doctors say when you told them you wanted the fetus? Did they tell you, get out of here, you weirdo? What do you want that for? He said, no, when I told them I was going to give them a proper burial, they gave me the fetuses. And now he said, they send the mothers to me first. And I talked oh. to them at the orphanage when the kids are running around and the women are looking at those kids. Yep. And then he tells them, I will take the baby under one condition. You need to help me. Just at the first, I need you to nurse the baby right. when it's a neonate. Yeah. And the mother agrees to do it. And of yep. course, once she nurses the baby, yep. she can't, can't get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> and and if they do leave it with him, he said it, he's already had at least one-third of the mothers, which, you know, that's probably, I don't know, 40, 50 mothers have yeah. come and asked for their baby back. And he's wow. so sure, and he, he hands them the child. Wow. Oh, Steve, awesome. that was worth the call tonight Man. to me. I, I mean, all all by itself. That is fantastic. And wow. he names all the fetuses that he buries. And he gives them oh. Bible names. Man. And uh-huh. so we said... Okay, now I have to check it out. What, what's his name, yeah. Steve? What's this gentleman's name? Well, it's a Vietnamese name. It's okay. Tong Phuc Phu. <laughs> All you have to do is Google, man buries 10,000 babies in Vietnam. It'll just just did it. Yep, okay. it, there's, there's, there's uh, at least two videos. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Watch that. It'll blow your mind. So we said, what What do you need? Because obviously the living children, he's got to feed. And right. uh, he told us, well, he could use a rice cooker and he could use uh, a water heater for a warm shower for because some of the pregnant women stay in a room that he has until they have the baby. And he wants them to have a warm shower with the, you know, with their child instead of cold water. So yep. he didn't hardly ask for hardly nothing, and we gave him, I brought a whole bunch of dresses that our church here, the women make uh, all these dresses for little girls, and so we gave him all those dresses, and he was, I got pictures of it, I'll show you in my newsletter, or I'll send them to you. It's just an amazing story, but we're going to help him so he can continue to support the living children. Wow. Steve, what is the best way that people can help you in, in direct connect humanitarian aid? What what are your needs, and what's the best way for a for a person to be of help to you? Well, obviously, uh, financially, I mean, we're always trying to raise money because you know it takes money to uh, support, you know, to help these people that I've been describing. Um, but really. Uh, at times, we do call on subject matter experts, because if we can, either we bring a professional from over there here to attend classes or training, you know, to upgrade their, you know, professional skills, uh, or we need to take someone from here over there, you know, whether it's uh, a, a person who specializes well, like with Wayne Hansen with wheelchairs, or the nurses sure. we took from from Montana, uh, Nikki Morancic and, and Daniel Jacobs to take, and they did the training there. So we need uh, professional help sometimes. And Steve, how do you get how do you get the message out for what kind of professional help you need? 
Well, generally, um, I'm getting more and more connected all the time. And even if I know someone who, like, is a doctor or a nurse, even if they personally can't go, they they might know someone else that can. Now, you said you spoke to Sue Wynn. Well, you know, his wife, Jessie, is an RN, and now she's just yeah. finishing medical mm. school. Yeah. And so it's, so it's, it's through co- connections. It's through networking. So I'm always so, so if I'm people, if I'm listening today, and and I think mm-hmm. you know what, hey, I'm a nurse, um, and and I would love to do that. How do I get in touch? I mean, is it best if I reach you through the website and say, Mr. Doty, I I heard about the Vietnamese orphanage. I want I want to be involved. Is it best okay. for me to contact you through the website? Through the website, either it has an email link or it has a 1-800 number okay. Uh, okay. that we maintain. Uh, you know, it, it goes right into a, a voice uh, thing that uh, sends me a message that I have a message. Uh, so I have that uh, through that 1-800 number. And that's at uh, directconnectaid.org? Directconnectaid.org is the website, right? And that is correct. Okay. Yes. And then can I sign up, like, uh, from the website, I should be able to sign up for the newsletter also? Is that free to anybody? Yep, yep. As far, yep, that, uh, we've just had that website redone here recently in the last probably six months. And, Looks great. Uh, I think that link is, is is working. In fact, now that you mentioned I'll make double sure, but it's supposed to be. And that, yeah, someone should be able to click on that. And it will get them uh, connected to sign up for a newsletter. Yep, it works. Just in it. Okay, good. Steve, I have to ask you: Was there? I mean, uh, I know, I know you have a long history at the uh, Department of Defense. Retired from there not too many years ago. I mean, was this something in the back of your mind that as soon as I'm done working here, I, I want to start my own humanitarian aid organization? I mean, were you just? Were you just waiting for the time for that to happen? Was there one moment? When did you decide? When did you just say, okay, I'm going to do this thing? Well, you know. Or was there a moment? Did it just kind of grow on you and then you realize, I have a humanitarian aid organization on my hands? (laughs) Yeah, that's probably more like how it happened. Um, Okay. You know, I was working for the Defense Logistics Agency since 1973, and, um, you know, I went through my personal struggles, you know, with just my, you know, with alcohol and all kinds of other things. And, you know, I became a Christian. And, of course, I still maintain my job there. But I got involved in ministry uh, while I was still working. Um, I did both. I was what some people call a tent maker preacher. You know, I was mm-hmm. ministering at a local church that uh, I pretty much started and, um, you know, through the years and, uh kept my job, and uh, but I was asked by a group of preachers after the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, they wanted to get a group together and go over there and see if there was an opportunity for the gospel, and uh, they asked me if I wanted to go, and I was like, yeah, sure. So Who's crazy that. enough to do that? Yeah, let's talk to Steve. He'll go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. so I went with the group, and we were going to just do these English classes using Bible-based materials. It was a strategy that uh, someone yeah. else had perfected. And, uh, you know, it just opens up dialogue and conversation. Of course, the people that come can speak some English, 
and they want to uh-huh. practice. They want to make. They want to get uh, their English skills real good because you know they weren't great. Anyway, uh, doing that, we went to Minsk in Belarus. Well, what I saw sitting at those tables when we were working with our groups, and I did it three times, three different years, was the condition that the people were in. They were they were depressed. Um, they lacked their basic, uh, you know, because when the Soviet Union collapsed, it really left a lot of people, uh, it, you know, the economies crashed. Uh, they didn't have a lot, enough food. They didn't have enough medicine. The stores were, were empty. Yeah. Uh, it was yep. really bad. I thought to myself, we got to do more to help these people. And so I had been given a book by a relative that was about when Oliver North went back to Vietnam, and he went as a humanitarian sponsored through a NGO in Michigan, International yeah. Aid. Mm. So... I read that book, and he put this plug in for this organization. I thought, well, they're not far from me, so I wrote them a letter. They said, come down, check us out. I went over there. They had warehouses full of clothes, food, medicines uh, available for other NGOs to partner with to, you know, send to wherever. Hmm. So I got organized. I went to a lawyer, got my my, uh, – Nonprofit status, sure. Uh, established as an organization, the state of Michigan, and uh, somebody gave me five thousand uh, dollars when I was visiting at the Montana Family Camp. He was a visitor because I needed five thousand dollars for the container, and this guy gave it to me, and uh, I got it sent over to Belarus, and that began the the work in 1998, and I still had 10 more years to work for the government. So yeah. I did all of that at the same time. I, I <laughs> trips overseas. I was working my job and uh, still ministering at the local church. Wow. Yeah. Steve, I, I, have to, I have to ask. I've had the, the pleasure of uh, spending a couple of days with you in, in Michigan a couple of years back. You know, down in your uh, down in your office or, uh, or or on your fridge, what's the photo on your fridge? I mean, what's what's the thing that you know, or, or, or in your office that, that when you look at that thing, you know, when you're reminded of of that event, that time, that place, that you say, this, this is, I know this is what I want to be doing. This is worth doing. What photo in particular, or just all those things I got stuck all over the walls? Whatever it is that, you know, on your proverbial fridge, what's the thing that makes it worth doing for you? I mean, obviously, you, you don't, uh, you know, you're not in it for the money. <laughs> what is it that makes it doable? Well, I guess for me personally is knowing that, you know, I was on that dark side, you know, with the alcohol. My parents were like that. My mother's suicide over the, you know, and the alcohol. Um, I was a social orphan. The mm-hmm. very kind of kids I see when I go into these different places and countries that still have orphanages like the Ukraine, like Belarus, like Vietnam, you know, or uh, Kosovo, they still have orphanages. Kids are warehoused in these places, and I know the staff does the best they can, but you know what? That's not a home. That's not a real home. And so when I see these kids in there, in fact, I've had an experience, you know, well, fairly recently, where now once the directors know I was a social orphan, they want me to talk to the older kids. 
Mm-hmm. Please come and talk to our kids. So they're not asking me for shoes and not asking me for clothes. They, we were going to an orphanage, and I asked the contact person, I said, well, what exactly do they need here? What are we going for? And she told me, they want you to talk to the kids. And I said, what? The director wants you to talk to the older kids. They're having a hard time, you know, and she wants you to talk to them. And I said, wow. really? So... Uh, if I'm able to take my personal life story and, and know the struggles I went through and how I was able to, you know, by God's grace, turn my life around to actually begin to help other people, again, that really humbles you. I realize that that helping those other people has really changed me. I don't have the bitterness of, uh-huh. you know, of that past of being a a cast off rejected, you know, uh, and I can see that emptiness in the eyes of these kids and these institutions, and my heart goes out to them. I tell them, look, you, you've got so much ahead of you. I know you've had it tough, and you've been in this place for years, but you're going to get out of here, and you're going to be somebody. You're going to hmm. amount to something. You can do it, and to watch their eyes light up. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, they know I already shared my story. In fact, this year I had another great opportunity. A lady at a school here that had me coming in to talk to her students, she got a summer job working in the local juvenile correctional facility, and she said, I need you to come and talk to these juveniles. <laughs> well, I yeah. spent almost two years <laughs> locked up. They locked yeah. me up when I was 13, and I didn't get out till I was 15. And I was locked up in Detroit, in Wayne County, and then in Star Commonwealth. And so <laughs> I'm down there. I had to go through three levels of locked doors in this juvenile facility. And I looked at those young people, and I brought my presentation for DCHA to show them all the different things I do around the world. But I told them, you know what, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad I can be talking to you young people, and they're looking at me like, what? (laughs) Right, right. I said, I was in a place just like this when I was your age, and I started with relating to them about how I've been exactly where you're at. And then I showed them, but look where I'm at now. I showed those pictures. I showed me in the orphanages. I showed me talking to the drug addicts. And I said, and you guys got it all ahead of you, too. You, this doesn't have to be the end of you in this place. And you know if you don't get your act together, you're going to go to Jackson Prison. And I'm sure you don't want to go there. And I'm telling you right here today, you don't have to. Man, they were sitting up straight. And then she called me a week later, can you come back here? They <laughs> right. want you to come back here. Wow. That that lights my eyes up, man. That's, yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's exciting that, you know, the the direct connection that you get to make with people that really, you know, that changes their lives. That's, yeah, thanks. That's, it's just a tremendous testament to, to the, to the power well, of God. In us, my to vote, the, if that's the, what your question was. I mean, when I read that was the question. Yeah. Those kind of things, because it's changed me and I now have quality of life, and my life is not dysfunctional anymore. And so I'm always, if I'm just getting back from a trip, I'm already planning my next one, which I've already done. I got my tickets. I'm heading back to Belarus here on March 16th. 
and I'm going to hit the same places, meet with the same, you know, uh, and encouraging. I'm going to the drug rehab places. They're expecting me. Uh, we're going to go help the ladies that are helping. The, one is heavily into the uh, rescue and uh, of the trafficking, the girls involved in that, and the others into the prevention. Meet with both. Uh, and just keep uh, just keep helping those helpers help these helpless uh, people. Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure, uh, really, an enlightening and, and heartwarming hearing um, you talk about Direct Connect and and your your past in in what led to it. Um, we we would just encourage the audience to go to directconnectaid.org, directconnectaid.org. Uh, it's a great website. It has a lot of resources there, videos of some things that you're doing, uh, the, the different projects around the world, and also how to get a hold of Steve and his team. Uh, but we're just so grateful for your time today and, and encourage anyone that, that has a heart to help to do so. And, and, Steve, we'd like to keep you on a little bit and, and uh, roll into another episode of Interman Radio and talk a little bit about uh, your personal life and, and kind of what led you to where you're at today. Are you game? Sure. Let's oh. do it. Great. Okay. In the meantime, uh, uh, we'll catch you next time on Interman Radio. <laughs>